What a wonderful Savior. Jesus, you are such an amazing Savior. Regardless of what we've done in our lives, how many times we have failed you, you are still our Savior. The blessed assurance that you are always there. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Have you ever wondered why smart people do stupid things? Maybe you're one of those smart people who does stupid things. You know, like a software genius who locks himself out of the car, or a brilliant physicist who can't remember where he put his wallet. You see, when we think of smart people, we tend to think of their IQ. But that's just one way that a person can be smart, and maybe not even the most important way. See, there's also smart in terms of common sense, Verbal ability, athleticism, musical ability, mechanical ability, and even social skills. There's multiple ways that people can be smart. And that's why smart people can do stupid things. Because they weren't smart in the area where they were being stupid. See, that's where James wants to take us today as we continue this walk through the book of James. So we're going to start in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 today, where it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. I want to stop there, and, and James has just given us a definition of wisdom, which we'll, we will detail in the verses that follow, but I wanted to stop there because he tells us what a real person of wisdom will be marked with. It will be marked by a good life, which means a life filled with deeds done with humility. And that's an interesting definition of wisdom. James is telling us that just being book smart isn't enough. Wisdom is not just having acquired information. Wisdom has to do with a life that is lived in light of spiritual truth. Not one that knows about spiritual truth, or even how best to live it, but to actually live it out. See, we tend to think of someone as smart as being just that. They're smart. And if someone's not smart, well, then we have a definition for them, too. They're dumb. I'm not supposed to say that in this day and age, but that's the opposite. But James wants to go deeper than that. He wants us to see that the real, intelligent, the real intelligence is called 
wisdom. And it's the opposite of being a fool. He wants us to change our vocabulary so that you're not just book smart, but you are soul smart. And there's a big difference between these two ways of thinking of things. Wisdom isn't just knowledge. It's a lifestyle. It's practice. It's decision-making. It's not doing well on an IQ test. It's about doing well on a lifestyle test. So how do we get on the path to that kind of wisdom that James is talking about. James has already given us a hint. Let's take another look at what he said. He said, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. James is telling us that real wisdom is a rightly lived life. And a rightly lived life, one that flows out of wisdom, is marked by a singular trait. And he tells us what it is. Humility. So now, why is humility so critical to living a wise life? Because it takes humility to learn. Humility to admit that we don't know something. It takes humility to realize where we need to grow. Because only a humble person, only a humble person is a learning person, is a teachable person. Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher whose name is almost synonymous with wisdom and intellect. In fact, in law school, we even used the Socratic method, which when I was there, I absolutely hated because a teacher would call on you and that meant you had to stand up. And you were standing one-on-one -on -one with that professor until they were done with you. Sometimes it felt like forever. Sometimes you almost wanted to play dumb so they would give up and move on to someone else. But there were professors who, even if you tried that, they wouldn't give up on you. You still had to stand there and just look dumb for in front of everybody. I remember one class, it was my second year of law school. Went through three weeks of class and the professor would call on people, but nobody had to stand up. It was like, okay, we made it through the first year. We don't have to do that anymore. We were on the fourth week of class. Professor says, Mr. Stockdale, why don't we renew an old tradition? I was like, oh, I knew what she was talking about because I had her in my first year. So I stood up, got abused for a little while. She eventually had some mercy on me and let me sit back down. But usually that meant you were pretty safe. I was glad I got it away out of the way at the beginning of the semester because there's a bunch of other people in the class that hadn't been called on yet. The next week... Mr. Stockdale, I kind of looked around like, wait, what, what in the world's going on? You already, you already called on me. I could stop listening and stop preparing for class. You already called on me last week. I don't know whether she forgot she called on me or if she was just being really mean that day, but I had another opportunity to go through the Socratic method. See, so Socrates is known for his wisdom. There's a legend attached to his great wisdom. 
The oracle of Delphi pronounced that no one in the world was wiser than Socrates. But this puzzled Socrates because he didn't consider himself wise at all. So he began a journey seeking out all who were known to be wise to determine if indeed he was the wisest of them all. And time after time, he discovered that those who he thought to be wise weren't. Now, they always thought that they were wise, but in reality, they weren't. So finally, Socrates came to the stunning conclusion that the oracle pronounced him as the wisest person in the world was true because Socrates knew himself to hold no wisdom at all. See, when he realized that he didn't have any wisdom, that made him the wisest. But it's not just any humility that we're talking about here. It's the kind of humility that understands that it is God's wisdom that we are after. Not anyone else's. Not much less, not our own. Our own wisdom is worth nothing. We, it is seeking after God's wisdom. And we are to seek it out, and then we are to live it. So James is going to take us a little bit deeper into this. He's going to show us exactly how to live wisely on God's terms. But first, James is going to show us how we can also be fools. And that's where he picks up in verse 14. He says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Now, is that what you would have expected? If I told you that we were going to look at the Bible's prescription for relational wisdom, specifically how to make sure to, that as smart people you don't do stupid things, would you have thought that it was going to be a conversation about envy and selfish ambition? Probably not, which is why we ought to dig down deeper into this because there's probably something here we probably aren't used to hearing. See, first, what, what exactly is bitter envy? What exactly is selfish ambition? Selfish ambition is the art of self-promotion. Seeking attention for ourselves. Trying to push our own agenda. To promote ourselves. Envy, though, is a little bit more subtle. And often less observed. See, we, when we think of envy... We tend to think of it as not that big of a deal. 
I mean, isn't it just looking at somebody and wishing you had something, a little bit of what they had? What's the harm in that? But that's not the real scoop on envy. It's not what's talked about throughout the Bible as one of the deadliest of sins. You see, envy, if left unchecked, if given it's the ability to reign in your life, will go on a relational lifestyle warpath. And it begins with desire. See, we see something that somebody has or, or something that they can do or something they have achieved, and we wish we had it or could do it or had achieved it. So when someone is making $50,000, they envy the person who's making $250,000. The C student envies the A student. But that's just where it begins. If unchecked, that desire turns into dislike. And that's what the word envy means. To look on someone with malice or to have an evil eye towards someone. So you don't celebrate what they have been able to accomplish. Instead, you resent it. And you start to resent them. You start to turn hostile. And it becomes personal. Almost as if they are getting, or what they're getting, what they're experiencing, somehow rightly belongs to you. It starts to celebrate the pain, the suffering, the failings, the mistakes, the sins of others. Now, I know you're probably sitting there saying, I don't do that. Yes, you do. So, so do I. We are all guilty of envy. If you're a business leader, you secretly smile on the inside when a competing business leader is shown to be a crook. Or the man whose neighbor's kid makes lower grades or doesn't get into the school that your kid gets into, you secretly smile on the inside. Fill in the blank. It, it could be polit a politician who slips, an athlete who gets injured. You secretly are happy on the inside if they're on the other team. Envy celebrates those things. Envy will want to take this even further than dislike. If unchecked in our lives, envy will take that dislike and try to lead you to destroy whatever it is that you were desiring in the other person's life. It will actually try to get you to take it away from them. See, most of the time when we do this, we're not even aware that we're doing it. We, we just let our envy kind of bubble up to the surface and tear what it is that we envy about the other person, tear it down and tear them down. So someone does a good job and, and we cast a shadow over it by questioning their motives. And even if you keep it to yourself, 
hidden in the dark recesses of your mind and your heart and your spirit, it will infect your life. Envy will not stop until that which is desired is either possessed or destroyed. Let's remember what James is wanting us to see here. How does envy create a fool and tear away at wisdom? We can trace it back to this. First, when you envy, you are kept from looking at yourself the way that you should be. When you're fixated on someone else, you're not looking at your own issues in your life. When all you do is look at others in envy, focusing on what they have compared to what you don't, you never do what it takes to become who you were meant to be. And second, when, when you give in to envy, it keeps you from looking at others the way that you should. Let's say someone has achieved a particular position that you would like to achieve. Envy simply desires it, resents it and the person, and if unchecked, seeks to undermine that person and their achievements. It will take you on a journey of desire, resentment, and eventually destruction. But that doesn't do anything towards what you want, does it? It doesn't bring one bit of change into your life. It keeps you from the humility that allows you to be teachable. But when you move past envy toward a sense of security, in regards to who you are and who God has made you to be and who God has made others to be, then you can begin to celebrate the life of others, to celebrate their accomplishments and to draw from their experiences and their victories into your own life. People who once threatened you can become mentors, heroes, even role models. Finally, envy will not only keep you from looking at what needs attention in your own life and keep you from learning from others, it will eventually destroy whatever life you now have. See, that's the irony of envy. It puts all of our energy into tearing another person's accomplishments down instead of achieving something for ourselves. Envy doesn't raise us to the level of that other person. It just wants to bring that person down to our level. So with that in mind, James then gives us a snapshot into what relational wisdom actually looks like. Verse 17 says, But the wisdom that comes down from heaven is, first of all, pure, 
then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. See, there you find the most complete description of a wisely led, wisely lived life in all Scripture. There are eight markers that we just read of, of what that life would be. And you could, you could craft an entire series around those eight markers, but I just want to quickly dip our toes into each of them. The first one, wisdom is pure, which means you aren't thinking about yourself. You're free from self-seeking, self-promotion, or even position. You're free from ulterior motives. Second, wisdom is peace-loving, which means it's non-divisive, non-competitive. It's not concerned with everything going your way. Third, wisdom is considerate. It thinks of others. It's empathetic. Fourth, wisdom is submissive. It's submitted to Christ in whatever Christ wants or wills for your life. It's not power hungry. It's willing to yield to others. It's open to reason. It's ready to be convinced of the good of others. Fifth, wisdom is full of mercy. Caring about others who are going through difficult times. Sixth, wisdom is full of good fruit. Meaning your life is littered with good acts and good deeds to help others. Seventh, wisdom is impartial. It's no respecter of persons. It's not judgmental. It doesn't rank people in terms of worth or value. Then finally, eighth, wisdom is sincere. It's authentic. It's real. It's not phony. It's not two-faced. So to sum all of that up, James simply tells us that a wise life is one that has peace around it. You will be someone who breeds harmony, unity, and community. Because wisdom is living rightly with God and with others. Heavenly Father, thank you that James gives us this, this deep dive into wisdom to show us what wisdom truly is, to give us, uh, but also tell us what being a fool is. And if we're honest with ourselves, so often we play the part of the fool instead of the person with wisdom. Help us to live in humility, to be teachable, to open our hearts and our eyes to you and what you are teaching us. We need you to be our vision, to be our wisdom. 
So be thou my vision. In Jesus' name.